Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We pray that as we look now at Psalm 61, that you help us to uh, understand better what it means to pray and you help us to commit ourselves to be prayerful this year. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to 2017. Have you made any New Year's resolutions this year? Uh, I, make, I make pretty much the same resolution every single year. Uh, every year I resolve, this year I'm going to pray more. I'm going to spend more time, better time, praying to God. Yeah, good reasons for that to be a resolution. Pr- prayer is a great privilege, don't you think? United by the Holy Spirit to the Jesus who died and rose again for us, we are able to draw into the presence of a holy God. That's not something to take for granted, that's a privilege. We are able to talk to the God who holds the entire universe in his hands. We're able to call on him, a holy, perfect God, as Father because of what Jesus has done, because we're united to Jesus by the Spirit. We can call on this God as Father knowing that he is good, knowing that he knows what we need, knowing that he wants what is best for his children. Prayer is a great privilege. And and, and prayer, it's also also so obviously necessary. God holds our every moment in his hands. Our, Our every breath, our every heartbeat is sustained by him. God alone can do for us the things that we want and need. All of the things that I most want to see. The salvation of my family, the, the health and growth of our church, these are all things that are impossible for me to do. They're all God's work. And so prayer is not just a privilege, but so obviously necessary. It's right and good that we should be committing ourselves to pray. And yet every year, despite my resolutions... Find myself disappointed at my prayer life. I reckon the weakest aspect of my Christian faith is my prayer life. I find prayer really difficult. Lots of things that I reckon make prayer difficult. Firstly, prayer requires a lot of faith. Faith that I struggle to have. Prayer, prayer feels to me like talking to myself. I'm not aware of anyone listening. It's hard to believe that anyone is listening. You can't sense anyone listening, yet you have to, you have to trust, have faith. And that's not easy. Prayer also requires effort, requires time and concentration. The Bible talks about wrestling or agonising in prayer. It's hard work. And I'm naturally lazy. Prayer also requires love and care for other people. You have to actually care for people, love them, if you're going to take out the time to bring them before God and pray for them. Too often my lack of prayer reveals my lack of care. But there's one other thing that makes prayer hard for me. And that's the fact that often I don't know what to pray. I'm I'm often ignorant about what the best thing is to pray for. And so I don't know what to ask. So for example, take take something obvious. Take take the situation in Syria. Warren just prayed for peace. That seems like a good thing to pray. Don't you reckon that God would bring peace to the Middle East? 
Although if you start getting any more specific than that and things get very, very complicated, I mean, which side should I be praying for to win the battle? I haven't got the faintest idea. Who should I be praying is, is, is rescued? Who should win? Who should... And the more I think about it, should we actually be praying for peace at all? I mean, maybe God has a plan here. Maybe God's plan is to use this war to expose the evils of Islam. Maybe God's plan is deliberately, through this war, to spread Muslims throughout Europe and the world as refugees so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus or so that they can challenge the secularism of the Western world. Maybe I am praying against God's plan when I pray for peace in the Middle East. Who knows? It's the same with lots of prayers. I might pray for sunshine so we can have morning tea. What if my prayers are stopping the rain from falling on some poor farmer's crops? I I might pray for the Parramatta Eels to win the Premiership. What would that mean for the fans of the other teams? I I might pray for our church to grow. What if that means another church fails? Reality is I'm very small and very ignorant. The vast majority of the time... I don't know what God's plan is. The vast majority of the time, I don't know what implications or consequences my prayers might have. The vast majority of the time, I do not know what the best thing is to pray for. Maybe I'd be better off just keeping quiet. Wake up each morning. Good morning, God. Your will be done today on earth as it is in heaven. We'll chat again tomorrow. Do you see the issue? Do you ever find yourself in the same situation? You don't know what to pray for. What do you do in that situation? If you have a look with me at this psalm, if you have a look in the heading... Remember, the headings of the psalms, are they're not NIV headings, they're actually part of the psalm, they belong to the psalm. Whenever you read a psalm, you should always read the heading that goes with it. You can see from the heading of this psalm, it was written by King David. Can you see it there in the heading? It says, for the director of music, with stringed instruments of David. That's David the king. Uh, David doesn't say in the psalm exactly what was happening in his very interesting life at the time, but from what he does say, we can make a guess. Most commentators seem to think that this psalm was written during what was called Absalom's Rebellion. Now, Absalom's Rebellion was a terrible, terrible time in David's life. Absalom was one of David's sons. Now, David had many wives and many children. Absalom was one of his children. Absalom, of course, because David had many wives, he had lots of half-brothers and half-sisters. But Absalom did have one, at least one, full sister. Her name was Tamar. Tamar was a beautiful girl, a very kind girl. But then one of Absalom's half-brothers, a man by the name of Amnon, raped and then abandoned Tamar. Now, King David was angry about it, but he didn't do anything about it. It seems he was pretty hopeless when it came to controlling or disciplining his children. Absalom, though, was furious. He was furious at what had happened to his sister. And in revenge, he had his half-brother Amnon murdered. Absalom then escaped to another country. After a few years, Absalom came back to Israel. He was at least outwardly reconciled to his father, but from then on, Absalom hated his own father. 
He, he schemed to take his father's throne. Now, Absalom was a very handsome man. He was a good politician, good at pressing the flesh, kissing babies, that kind of thing. And, and so as the years passed, he won over many of the people of Israel. They thought, gee, Absalom would be a much better king than his dad. And when, when he thought the time was right, Absalom staged his treacherous rebellion. He gathered his forces and he had himself declared as king. David realised he was in trouble and he fled the country. He escaped. He crossed the Jordan River out of Israel. And then Absalom took the throne and he plotted an all-out war against his father David and the people who remained loyal to him. That, it seems, is the background to this psalm. Now, as you can imagine, this is a dreadful, dreadful time for King David. He had lost everything. He, he, he was now in exile, in hiding, his own son trying to kill him. David didn't want to die. But at the same time, he loved his son. I suspect he may have had some sympathy for Absalom after the whole tragedy with Tamar. He probably felt a bit guilty about how he'd handled the whole affair. Uh, David, he didn't want to lose the throne. He didn't want to be defeated or killed. But, but he didn't want to fight against his own son either. He, he didn't want to hurt him. And yet Absalom presented probably the biggest challenge to David's throne in, in, in his whole life. So here's the situation that David's in. He doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't want to lose this battle, but he doesn't want to win either. Either way, it's lose-lose. This is going to be a tragedy. But most significantly for David, this, this whole situation is a threat to the promises that God had given him. Early on in David's reign, God made some amazing promises to King David. He promised that David's dynasty, his his family would rule over the people of God forever. I've put the promise there on your outline. Can you see there on your outlines from 2 Samuel chapter 7? On the left-hand side there, God said this to King David. He said, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house, a dynasty for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's God's promise. But now what's happened? Looks like it's the end of King David's reign. He's been thrown out of the country. And who's going to take over? Well, not some godly son who's going to continue the worship of God and build the temple of the Lord. No, no, the, the, the sort of son who's a sneaky traitor, who, the sort of son who would rebel against his own father, not exactly good kingship material. What is going to happen to God's promise here? What's going to happen to David's dynasty? Well, as the psalm begins, you can see that David is feeling terrible. He prays to God. He says, God, will you please, please listen to me? He says, I'm here at the ends of the earth. He's been thrown out of the promised land. He feels far away from God and he is far away from God's tabernacle in Jerusalem. And David says that his heart is growing faint. He feels like he's in such despair. He feels like his heart's going to stop. He feels so miserable, so stressed that he could die. 
Have a look with me at verse 1 of the psalm. Psalm 61, verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. David feels like he's dying of stress. He he begs God to listen to his prayer. And and now we get to the first part of the prayer itself. David says that he wants to be led to a rock that is taller than he is. There in the second half of verse 2, David prays. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, sounds a bit weird to start with, but David goes on to explain what he means. Uh, By a rock, David means like a firm stable place of refuge, a a strong place where he can hide, where he can be protected. And for David, he says, that place has always been God himself. He says to God, he says, you have always been that strong tower, that refuge for me against any enemies that I've had before. He says to God, "I, I just want you to please protect me. I want to be in your presence. I want to be sheltered by you, protected by you forever. Will you please be my rock? Verse 3. For you, God, have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And there's that word selah. We don't know what selah means. Maybe some kind of musical instruction like insert wailing blues guitar solo here or something like that. Not exactly sure. But but that's David's prayer. In his in his stress, he just wants to be in the presence of God, safe and protected like a chick under the wings of a mother hen. And David goes on to say that he's, he's confident that his prayer will be answered. He, he's confident that God will protect him. He, he's made his vows to God. He's promised to be God's person. He's promised to serve God. And God has given him his heritage. God has given him his place in the promised land. He's... David knows that he is God's person, and so he believes God will answer my prayers. Verse 5. For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. So David prays for God's protection, and now he prays again. The second part of his prayer, he prays, he prays that God will keep his promise. He prays that God will keep his promise about, about David's dynasty. He prays that God will give long life to the king of Israel. And he prays that the generations that come after him will have long life, that their years will be extended as well. He prays they'll have long and prosperous reigns. And he prays that the promised son from his dynasty will rule in the presence of God forever, just exactly as God promised. David prays that God will love and protect the king. Verse 6. Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. David asks God to protect the king. And David says, if you do that, God, I will be able to praise you and serve you as I've promised forever. Verse 8. Then will I ever sing praise to your name. And fulfill my vows day after day. A 
Okay, well, can you see what's here then in this psalm, Psalm 61? Two aspects to David's prayer. He prays for God to protect him, and he prays for God to, to, to keep his promise to... to, to the king in his dynasty will rule in God's presence forever. Now, if you're a reader of the Psalms, you'll realise that this Psalm is quite unusual. Usually when David's in trouble, when he's facing one of his enemies, he prays very specifically. He prays, God, I want you to save me and I want you to bring down my enemy. I want you to vindicate me and I want you to squash the person who's trying to hurt me. Just come back with me to Psalms, just back to Psalm 59. Come back with me to Psalm 59 and you'll see a much more common form of Psalm uh, of David. You see Psalm 59 there. Verse 1, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those up who rise against me. Deliver me from evildoers. Save me from bloodthirsty men. This is probably written at the time of Saul when King Saul was trying to get him. He says, see how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offence or sin of mine, O Lord. I've done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. Now there's a pretty standard form psalm for David. But did you notice Psalm 61? It just... It it's completely different. There's no mention of David's enemy. He talks about past enemies, no mention of David's present enemy. And what David prays for, if you look at it carefully, you actually see it's quite ambiguous. There in verses 2 to 4, you see David's praying there for protection. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. May I dwell in your tent forever. Keep me in the refuge of your wings. He's asking for God's protection. But what kind of protection? Is it to have his enemy defeated? Is it for him to be rescued and brought back to the throne? Or is it maybe for him to die and be in God's presence forever? doesn't say. It's ambiguous. could be either. Or there in verse 6, as we get to the second part of the prayer, again, it's ambiguous. He doesn't say, increase the years of my life. No, no, what does he say? increase the years of the king's life who's he talking about is he talking about himself or is he talking about another king maybe is he talking about the, the, the current king king absalom so the thing is this this is why this psalm is so unusual and why i think it's so interesting david doesn't know what to pray for it makes sense if he's talking about absalom doesn't it David doesn't know what he wants. He wants to be protected, but he doesn't want to see Absalom hurt. He, he doesn't want to lose the battle, but he doesn't want to win the battle either. He, he, he wants God to keep his promise about his dynasty, but he doesn't know what that means. Does that mean, well, God, you're sovereign, and, and Absalom's now in place, so keep your promise to him? Or does it mean Absalom's got to go, and I've got to be the king? He just doesn't know. Doesn't know what to pray, and so what does he do? We praise anyway. He prays for the things that he does know that he wants. He prays that God will protect him and that he'll be in God's presence. And, and as, best he, as best he can, David prays in line with God's promises. He prays in line with what he knows God does want from his promises. Do you know the amazing and wonderful thing, though? God answered David's prayer. 
This might have been an ignorant prayer in some ways, but God used David's prayer magnificently. In the short term, it turned out it was God's will to defeat Absalom, to destroy Absalom. Absalom's rebellion was put down. David was restored to the throne, and he was able to hand the throne over then to his son, do you remember, Solomon, who did what? Built the temple, just as God had promised. And then in the longer term, God answered David's prayer by sending Jesus into the world. Jesus was born into the line, into the dynasty of King David, and after he died on the cross for our sins, God raised him from the dead, and in so doing, he answered David's prayers in Psalm 61. What are David's prayers in Psalm 61? Number one, that God will protect him, be his refuge, hold him in his, under, his, under his wing forever. That is now true through the risen Jesus. David is today in the tent of God in heaven. As he says in Psalm 60, as he says in, in, in the very last verse, verse 8, he's ever singing praise to God's name. He is dwelling in the tent of God forever through Jesus. This prayer has been answered for David. And the second part of the prayer, the second part of the prayer, David prays that God will raise up the king, that the king will ever be protected in the presence of God. Enthroned in the presence of God forever. That's the risen Jesus, isn't it? The king from the line of David, enthroned in the presence of God forever. David didn't know what to pray. This is an ignorant prayer, and yet God chose to use this prayer magnificently. Both in the short term and through Jesus, I can tell you confidently right now that David is eternally grateful for God's answer to his prayer. Okay. Let's finish by thinking about what we can learn from David's prayer. As we find ourselves in situations like his, I take it that you're not going to have your throne stolen by your son who's trying to kill you. Hopefully that won't happen to you, this particular situation. But, but as we face situations where we, like David, don't know what to pray for, we're not sure what the best thing is, I reckon we can learn from this psalm. Two things I reckon we can learn from David here. First thing we can learn is this. You don't know what to pray? Pray anyway. Don't let your ignorance stop you from praying. Don't let the fact that you don't know every intended or unintended consequence of your prayers stop you. Pray anyway. See, with prayer, it's not like some kind of an examination. You've got to have the right answer or somehow you're going to be given a fail. No, no, prayer, it's more like, it's more like a child talking to a father. I have four children. Just about every sentence in our house seems to start with, Dad, can I? My kids often ask me for things, including things that they're pretty sure they won't get. So, for example, one of my children might say, Dad, can I have a pony? I'll say, no. And they'll say, okay, I tried. <laughs> that may seem like a silly thing to ask. Maybe it may seem like an annoying thing to ask, especially when four children are asking a thousand things a day. But not to me as a dad, because just think about it for a minute. Dad, can I have a pony? There is so much in that prayer for me to be happy about. I am happy that my children are talking to me. That's a beautiful thing. I am happy that my children are willing to expose the desires of their heart to their dad. I want a pony. That's a beautiful thing. 
I am happy that my children acknowledge me as the giver of ponies. That's a nice thing. I am happy that my children think that I am someone who ought to be asked about whether there should be a pony eating the lawn in our backyard. They should seek my permission. That's a good thing. And I'm happy that they are willing to bow to my wisdom as to the best answer to their prayer. No, you can't have a pony. Now, I can't find anywhere in the Bible where God gets angry with his people for humbly asking him for something. Even when it's not his will to do it. Think Garden of Gethsemane. Even if we're asking for something God is not planning to give, I don't see any evidence that that makes him cranky. No, no, no. So friends, talk to your father. Even when you don't know what the best thing is to pray for, talk anyway. Who knows what great thing he might do with your prayer as we saw with David's prayer and as we saw in our other reading. It says that God can do more than we ask or even imagine. God's not going to be hindered by the ignorance of our prayers. So pray anyway. Second thing. Second thing we learn from David's prayer here is this. It is wise to pray in accordance with God's promises. In this particular situation, David didn't know specifically what to pray for. Which king should win? How should you protect me? But he did know God's word. He did know God's promises. And so he did know at least some of God's will. He knew that that as a child of God who receives the heritage of God that that he should be asking to be in the presence of God. And he knew because of God's promise that he would have his son as an eternal king that he should be praying that God will keep his promise. It's the same for us, isn't it? Like we might, we might not know specifically what to pray for in this situation, but the Bible gives us a whole stack of guidance about God's will in our lives, about his plan for this world. Even here in Psalm 61, you don't know what to pray? Well, here are two good things to pray for. Pray that you can be in the presence of God in his tent forever. Pray that God will keep his promise and, and, and that Jesus will ever reign in his presence. There is, a, there is plenty of stuff in God's word for us to keep to keep us praying in 2017, don't you reckon? It's no excuse that we don't know everything. There is plenty here for us to go on with. Prayers that we do know God wants to answer because he's declared his will and his promises. Friends, prayer is hard work. It does require faith. It does require diligence. It does require love and care. And we don't always know what to pray for. And yet it's still a worthwhile New Year's resolution, don't you reckon? I hope you'll join me in it. Let's make 2017 a year of consistent, faithful prayer. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your wonderful mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that united to the risen Jesus, we are able to come into your presence and call you Father. Thank you so much for the privilege of prayer. Thank you so much that we can talk to you, our Heavenly Father. We pray that 2017 will be a year in which we are diligent and faithful and consistent in talking to you, in thanking you, in praising you, and in asking you for the things that we need. Give us strength to do this, we pray in Jesus' name.